Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The studio life of Anne Truitt, 1921-2004, is explored in the Focus exhibition, In the Tower, Anne Truitt. The first major presentation of Truitt's work at the National Gallery of Art, the exhibition celebrates the museum's acquisition of several major artworks by Truitt in recent years, including seminal works from the collection of the Corcoran Gallery of Art, as well as several outstanding loans. Bringing together nine sculptures, two paintings, and 12 works on paper, representing the different media in which the artist worked, the exhibition traces Truitt's artistic development from 1961 to 2002. One of the most original and important sculptors to emerge in the United States during the 1960s, Truitt is unique in the field of minimalist art. She hand-painted her sculptures in multiple layers to create abstract compositions of subtle color in three dimensions. Her art is infused with memory and feeling, unlike much minimalist art, and while most of her peers were based in New York or Los Angeles, she worked alone and independently in Washington, D.C. For a public symposium held on January 19, 2018, artist Rachel Harrison discusses the perception of color and shape and the experience of time in Truett's sculptures. Thank you, NGA, for arranging this great day to think deeply about Anne Truett. I'm getting a lot from this. Um, Anna and Miguel, your presentations also I will steal from because I didn't prepare. Um, and here we are to talk about enough space, enough color, Anne Truett, and the time to see. Um, I said just now at lunch to James, like, how much time does it take to see? So where am I right now at seeing Anne Truett, and where did it begin? So this is how I met Anne Truett. Oh, I have two more things. So sometime in the early 90s, I was in my early 20s, and this was out of print, so some friend of mine who was an artist and was teaching said I could go to Kinko's and get a copy that they were making for their class. So I was reading, this was after I finished my undergraduate studies, which were not at an art school, but sort of related to art. So I'm reading Don Judd, and I liked his writing style then, and I like it now. I like that it's terse, I like that it's argumentative, I like that it's kind of obnoxious. Sometimes artists can't help themselves. And I like that he complained, so that's fine with me. Um, <laughs> even if I disagree with the things he complained about. So what, here's one. Um, if we look in the purple, so I'm, I'm in my 20s and it's in the 90s and I didn't really study art, but I sort of did. So I knew a lot about Judd. I was very interested in Tony Smith. I was uh, very interested in a lot of sculpture and I dropped the book. I said, how could a woman invent minimal art? And I've never heard this name, Anne Truitt. And later I realized it's spelled wrong. And her name, that is. <laughs> um, but whose fault is that? So anyway, to get right to it, I didn't understand how a woman could have invented minimalism, and I had never heard her name. And at this time, I could not see her work. And I found out that MoMA had one or two, but it wasn't on view. And I found out different things. She had still showed with Emmerich, so I could go up there. Uh, had to disappear to DC because Judd ran her out of town. You know, different things people tell you. Who knows if they're true? The last sentence in this category, if you look at the foot, if the queen had balls, she would be king. 
Don't know what that means. So I do know that if anyone artist started or anticipated minimal art, it was she in the fence-like and then box-like objects of wood or aluminum she began making in the former, the former in 61 and the later in 62. Now this argument, like he's got a lot invested in this. He's pissed off and I'm wondering why. His work is really quite different. When I finally did start to see Truett and think about her use of color and her use of paint, I see them as being light years apart. Uh, yeah, you can make a lot of direct arguments for appearance, and appearances can be deceiving. Uh, concerns, and my concerns about how art is made, I happen to, to love this sculpture a lot. Uh, I love this all the works of Judd from this period. I, I recommend going to Marfin, seeing them installed the way he had them, and they're phenomenal. Um, but a, a pipe in a box? That's not layering paint by hand and seeing uh, light and feeling and emotion and things that she did. I see them, I, see, I think that he did purge his work, as we know, of many, many things uh, for, for a purpose. And I think they're, I'm interested in both artists. They're just very different. So what was at stake in his arguments in making sure that we knew she didn't invent minimalism, which, as he said, was not really worth inventing? So to get to color for a second, when color is intrinsic in a material, so if I have stainless steel and plexiglass and I see gray and I see orange, my experience of these things are through their material. So the next time I go into a bank or anywhere, I was actually looking at these chairs I'm being a little performative to get to a part of how we experience color in the world and how we experience it as artists and how we look and how we see and how there's something about Truett's work that helps me to see paint and how paint represents color. And that's very different than this, which we know. This is great for a lot of other reasons. It's interesting if you Google Ann Truett, how little you know about her work. And maybe that's not true. Maybe you know a lot about her work. Maybe you know that when works are more recently hit on, they get put at the top of the page, and so you'll see installation shots. You do see the column repeated. You see the column repeated, equally spaced. Um, you see things that aren't her work, which always happens in Google image searches. I was interested to come across, I've actually never seen these small pieces, but just to jump into it, if you see this, do you know how big it is? Do you know how it affects your body? Do you know when you encounter it? Are you towering over it? You could do more searches and then say, oh yeah, it is small because it's on a pedestal, because I wasn't really sure. This could have been eight feet tall. And then I thought, oh, did she make groupings of works that were eight feet tall on pedestals? And what would the, you know, the, how would that relate to architecture? How would that be different? Um, but these are very interesting to me. You'll notice how different the color is, so I almost wondered, are they the same, but they're not. I put this together quickly, so they're not the same. So these smaller, these smaller works seem to identify a different aspect of her, of her process uh, in terms of seeing how things relate to each other. I'm sort of interested in the fact that her commitment to autonomy that when she made a single column and married it to color, and she decided whatever color it might be, 
it would it would commit to that color and if she didn't like it she would sand it and remove it and put on another color and uh, the layers might come through uh, in this it seems to be about something else it seems to be about the parts relating to each other and and to a whole and trust still trying to figure that out a little bit um, these are also these this was also a picture I found online I had no idea what I was looking at at first I just assumed that they were small which was confirmed that they're smaller works uh, I don't know how these relate to the body in the same way um, her work upstairs is so perfectly scaled for me it's in that room in the tower it's you can walk through it and you don't feel you know, to go back to some words of Tony Smith and other artists about things being towering over you, is it a monument, is it an object, where is it, where is your body in relationship to it? These, this picture seems weird. So I wanted to talk a little bit about looking at art via the internet and via pictures when we're so far away from it. Because it's a very, you know, it's, it was the whole thing about, oh, I was like, oh, who's this artist, Ann Truitt? I don't know who she is. How can I see her work? And now that I'm able to see her work, every time I see her work, I wonder if I have enough time to see her work. Uh, another internet search this morning, the other morning on my phone, it's always interesting to see who uh, the people also searched for. I don't know if you could, yeah. So people also searched for. So this is just the internet telling me the other people that we searched for, like that's interesting. So the people who have not been searched for are the people in DC that she was connected to, uh, Morris Lewis, uh, there was an artist, David Smith, people have not searched for, people have not searched for, I made a list somewhere, but now I can't find it. But the people in this room know the people who weren't searched for there. Uh, well, it doesn't really matter, but we know that people didn't search for Ah, Kenneth Noland, that was the one I was thinking about. No one searched for Kenneth Noland. So they searched for uh, Mary Pinchot Meyer, her friend, which a lot of you know a lot about. I didn't, I learned a lot. I could only find one picture of her work. In Jem's amazing film that I was so thankful to see right now, I wrote down some things when she said that color can zoom into being. Uh, when she talked about the value, when she talked about the hue, when she talked about the way a color affects another color, I suddenly imagined her and her friend, the artist Mary Mitchell Meyer, talking in the studio together. What were their conversations like? This is a very interesting painting to me. This palette of a blue and a purple, the relationship they have to each other, how you perceive one as lighter or darker than the next the green and the brown, or the rust, the olive green, the orangey brown, how these colors are related to each other, that they're contained within a circle, what that might have to do with targets, uh, and obviously Nolan and Morris and other painters who were in DC at the time. So this was a, a revelation in preparing for this talk. I also found this quote online, it's the last sentence, there are two interpretive elements to Truett's sculpture, a forbidding armor which blocks out the viewer at first glance, and then a slowly revealed intimacy which invites further discovery. And I thought that was pretty nice. I think that's a nice way to think about her work possibly having an armor and wondering why. Why would you want to make an artwork that takes time to look at and time to unfold? Um, one of the things about minimalism as a movement 
even though it might not have been, but it was definitely a style of the time. And even if all the artists associated with it said they wanted nothing to do with it, they would engage in discourse around it. And so within those conversations, you have the idea of, def of definition. How do you define something? And if you define it, it has to kind of have rules. It's kind of going back to Judd saying, well, you know, Queen doesn't have balls and it, her work's not monochrome, so it's not minimalism. Or maybe Greenberg thinks it isn't purged enough, or whatever these, whatever these conver the direction of these conversations ultimately lead to the idea that there are rules in art and there is that one way to make an artwork. And I think, uh, I think a lot of artists need that in order to have the freedom to do what they want to do. You need to, it's a very difficult thing to do, to do, as I just heard so perfectly put, uh, something, something to be made not in regard to it being liked. <laughs> that uh, the filmmaker just said so perfectly. Uh, we, don't, we don't need likes here. I don't need someone to give me a heart on the Facebook page. So uh, I got the title for my talk about enough space, enough color uh, from James and his writings and his direction to Daybook where I found it, uh, as many of you have. So I've highlighted the important parts Enough was my radiant feeling for once in my life, enough space, enough color. It seemed to me that I had never before been free. Uh, I'm jealous. I would love to have such a great experience from looking at art. That's, I mean, I have various experience from looking at art, but the idea of freedom is something I think on a personal level we all as artists aspire to in making our own work, but also in looking at someone else's work. So I found that really exciting. Uh, I've been very interested in how her writing has come up today, how that is in comparison to Judd's writing a very different way to think and then to hear in this film, enough color is like having enough mashed potatoes. I'm just sort of <laughs> ruminating on that one. It can't be pretty. If it's pretty, you are gone. Uh, so I was curious, where, so this trip, this famous trip that Anne Truitt makes to DC to go see this group of abstract expressionists and imagists at the Guggenheim, and she sees these paintings and they change her life. So she sees, you can guess which one's the Reinhardt. She sees a lot of things in the show. I was great to, it was great to get these installation shots to see all the different things that she saw and which ones set her free, right? So add Reinhardt who you gotta love. Uh, this is the copy of the catalog, paintings from 61. Uh, this is you know, a reproduction of a catalog from 61, but I was curious, what does this painting look like? But I was running out of time, and so I went to MoMA's website. Uh, same painting, right? I'm not wrong on that, right? Same painting? And so same painting. So what, what depiction do we want? What is the representation of the artwork and what purpose does it serve? Does it serve the purpose of the abstract expressionists and images at the Guggenheim? Does it serve the purpose of a website? It is true, if you go to the website and you look at your screen from an angle, you can see some of Reinhardt's beautiful moves inside of it. Uh, it is there. <laughs> but it's also like the secret, but this is you know, the thing about looking at Reinhardt. So it makes me think a lot about what True was trying to achieve with her surfaces, with the layering of the paint. Why she might have not felt satisfied to have to sand down a column and to reapply the color and to do it again and again until she got it exactly how she wanted it. Uh, all of this I think of when I look at her work. 
The other painting in the show, which she loved, which set her free, was the Newman. And we all see the Newman there above the plant, so I won't show you where it is. And again, all the other fabulous art in the show that didn't set her free. Why is it that we're attracted to certain things as individuals? That's always an interest to me, why you like certain literature, why you like certain music. Everybody has different tastes. Newman, one mint, number six. My eyes are bad, 1953, lent by the artist in the catalog. Now, I was curious, hmm, that palette, hmm, that zip, what is that color? Ah, so it's this. It's not that, it's this. So this is the painting. So a zip, what does a zip mean to Truett? When you remove the tape and you have these different irregularities coming down the side, Truett has seemed so precise. The spoon up there, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that sculpture is a revelation. It is not one color. There is a line, half of it is got blue underneath. I've seen, I'm looking, I just looked at it and it's got all these lines from the thick brush that are in the grooves of the wood. So it's got blue on one side, it's got a red or a pink on the other and it's white over it. It's been created through layering. It's not one color, it's many. And that edge is really, really clean. It's not a zip. First show at Emmerich. It's been very nice today how many times this image has reappeared uh, to just think about. I'm drawn, I, I make sculpture. I should have identified myself. I'm gonna show some pictures in a second. I make sculpture and I'm very aware of how a sculpture sits in space. That has been one of my interests for a long time in terms of its relationship to the body and to a viewer, how a viewer moves around it. So when I saw this installation shot, I was kind of surprised to see them up against the wall. Uh, when I read that Clement Greenberg and Bill Rubin and someone else, who's the third? Nolan. Nolan installed the show for her. And uh, they installed the show for her because perhaps she thought they could do a better job or she hadn't really thought about it or she was a woman and they were all famous and powerful people. So anyway, they put her sculptures up against the wall. They installed them like paintings. Now in some way, if I wanna you know, go back to my thoughts about differentiating her from Judd, um, she is a painter, you know? She's a really, really, really great painter. I'm kind of, I, I'm a little bit post-label, so I don't really wanna, oops, I don't really wanna call her that. Uh, other things about the first exhibition, Andre Emmerich asked her if they could just use her last name on the card to mask her identity. Um, today, I would already planned to talk about that today or throw it out there. Uh, I was happy today to see the Proust, A.D. Truett, and I was happy to see the shot of her show in Tokyo, uh, to see Truett on the wall of the, on the uh, outside the gallery, no first name. Um, maybe she'd have no sex, success at all. <laughs> Oops. Maybe she'd have no success at all had they known she was a woman. Uh, but they knew they were women, and the people supporting her work knew that she was a woman, and it's here, and we're looking at it. And here we have sculptures installed like paintings, but maybe not. They're architectural, they're monumental, they're not monumental. They are filled with contradictions. Um, and it's very different than the way her work is installed upstairs and in other presentations I've seen. I'm gonna show two slides that I took out of a book of one sculpture. And in fact, that's my finger at the bottom in terms of scale. So this is a picture I took of an Anne Truitt out of a book, um, and it flattens it. So it starts to talk about its shape. 
on the outside. It's interesting, she made a lot of columns. A lot of the works that she made that are not columns are kind of differentiated from the columns to me because I start to think of them, the fences, it's clear we can label them and we know the references of what they are. But some of these other things deal with abstraction in a very particular way that I'm not, I'm still learning about. I'm still taking the time to see them. Uh, but here we have something that's more about shape and here we have something that might be more about its color just because I photographed it with the same light in my kitchen a slightly different way with my iPhone and notice that my hands were dirty when I was turning the page of the book so you can see my fingerprints on the truet. <laughs> uh, but two different experiences again of, of, a, of a very similar sculpture. No, so, I'm sorry, the same picture of a sculpture. Uh, the picture in the studio we all return to because it's so beautiful. <laughs> I chose to include it to think about light and to think about the conditions she needed to create her work and the luminosity and the color how that to her was so much about light. And it was also great to hear in the video uh, about lifting, uh, to get more color into the space, that she's laying down the color and she wants to lift it up, and that she's very aware of gravity and she's very, very aware of what it means to lie down a, under it, a hue. Uh, these are all things I wrote while I was watching the film in the dark. Um, and to think about her being in there, lying down with her color and having her color lift up. And I think you would need all these windows in around to have this feeling of really seeing. You can really only see a form with natural light. Otherwise, you just have too many crazy things going on with the hues and the colors. Oh, I wasn't gonna get there yet. Let me, uh, really abandon my notes. So now I'm gonna show you what I do and you're gonna wonder why I'm here. Um, James gave me a very nice introduction for bidding armor, I did talk about that. Uh, so this is Prezine, which is a solo exhibition I made last May in New York City. Prezine was the title of the whole exhibition. It had many sculptures. I'm only going to talk about three. The sculpture on the right, which is called Sculpture with Boots. Uh, just in terms of titles, the middle sculpture is called Life on Mars, and the one to the left is called Winged Victory. Inside that vitrine is a uh, Nika that I made and had flocked blue after Eve Klein. Um, but I don't make art about art. I don't do that. I have art within my art, but it's not about art. It might be about how I've digested things in the world. I digest politics and food and other things. Um, to get back to enough space and enough color, the sculpture on the right, uh, I made a form, and my forms are hollow. They are armatures of wood and chicken wire, and then I put, I call it schmutz over it, and then I paint them by hand. Um, I've done a few where I've tried to paint straight lines by hand on irregular forms. I'm interested in an articulated surface. The, the material on the outside of the form is applied you know, with gloves by me with my hands, so my hands are all over it. But then here I'm, I'm painting with a, with a straight line. So sculpture with boots is much taller than a person and wider than a person, so a person could be hiding behind it in this picture and you wouldn't see them. Uh, sculpture with boots has a few different personality disorders when it can't really decide what it wants to be. So is it a grid painting or is it something else? And uh, for myself moving around it, I see very many different gestures about color and ideas. 
Um, you can see now why I was interested in the Mary Pinchot Meyer and thinking about relational color and how when you put two colors next to each other, how does that change? And what is, what is that conversation? How does that conversation start? On the other side of Sculpture with Boots, there's a photograph of Lee Krausner's painting boots that I took a couple summers ago. Uh, I went to see Jackson Pollock's studio in Springs, New York, um, to see the floor. I'd gone once before and it was closed so I could just look in the window, but this day it was actually open so I could go inside and see that they had a little setup with stuff. And one of the things that they have, um, they have his paint cans in a vitrine. I also photographed those. And they have Lee Krasner's painting boots. So that's why I call the sculpture, Sculpture with Boots. This is a sculpture called Every Sculpture Needs a Trap Door. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Payne's Gray, also in the film I just saw. Um, I wanted to make a sculpture that was Naples yellow. Um, for any painter in the room, the you know different brands use uh, make pigments differently. So I, don't, I I paint in acrylic. I mix my own pigments sometimes um, with with dry and wet pigments. But I've dependently out of laziness come to use golden fluid liquid acrylics, and Naples yellow is really strange as you start to mix Payne's gray and a little bit of white and a little bit of blue, a little bit of bronze, different colors into it. So I was gonna make a sculpture where if you squinted your eyes from a distance, it was Payne's gray, but it was really all of this color. This sculpture was made out of a bunch of crushed Amazon boxes that I put together and a mailing tube. It sits on a round pedestal, so you'll have to walk around it. There's no front and there's no back. There's no money shot place to rest your hat. There is an upside down Abraham Lincoln mask, but you'll have to see it in person. Here's a close up of every sculpture needs a trap door, so you could see the color and you can see the text that I left next to it. It's a text by an artist named Andrea Frazier. Um, I had printed the text out and stapled it and had it on a table in my studio one summer and then put an iced coffee down on it. And so then the, it got really wet because if you leave the iced coffee there all day and then the condensation on the outside of the plastic cup melts and so the paper soaks in water and it gets rumpled. Now that's what artists do, they transform materials in their studio. <laughs> and that's what I did to a text called, Why Does Fred Sandbeck's Work Make Me Cry? Um, Fred Sandbeck is, a, is an artist like Truett, who I dearly love and, ha and really think a lot about color and space when I look at his work. Um, I'm gonna move on to Bear's Ears. Bear's Ears is this. Bear's Ears is a form on a cart with a soccer ball. Um, it doesn't quite sit right on the floor. I make these forms on the floor and I needed to paint it so I had to take it off and then I changed the shape. I'm, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process of, of constantly changing things. But when I was applying the paint, something happened, it just doesn't quite sit on the floor, but it depends on the floor. Not that that's important. This is another view of Bear's Ears on the floor. It's an unruly form. 
uh, you might not have to like it. It's not something you can remember when you walk on one side of it to come and see the next side. I don't really know if it congeals at any one place. It doesn't have a singularity of that in that way. It doesn't have the possibility of being named. It doesn't have one thing that you can latch onto, but it does have one thing stuck into it. And the thing that's stuck into it is a thumb, a thumb, thumb drive. Uh, I show in a gallery in New York City called Green Naftali that shows the work of Haroon Faroqi. And uh, he was an incredible person that I didn't know well. I loved his work, only met him a handful of times. Uh, and after he passed, died, I asked the gallery if they could put a lot of his films that I knew or didn't know on a thumb drive so I could watch them at my own house, studio, time. So I had a thumb drive of his work in my pocket and then got busy and forgot about it. And maybe you like run into the house and take off your jeans and then go out and do something and come back and then the next day you put them, you know, it's like having money in your back pocket that you didn't know about or a piece of paper that goes through the wash. So I found myself carrying around his films in my pocket <laughs> and I thought, my God, that's so weird. This wasn't his life's work. It's a selection of works. It's um, 38 films. Uh, that compression, the compression of someone's work into something so small, into a thumb, something that we even refer to as our smallest digit, our thumb, that compression and that tension, and to also think about data and how we have all of this data right now that's, that's just floating around us and compressed in our phones and wherever it might be, and is it seen? Is it ever seen? Did I ever watch all 38 films? How many times? Not yet. Are, is it still in my pocket? That kind of portability, these were all things I was thinking about. So the way that Lee Krasner might hang on a sculpture, or rather a picture of her boots, or just in terms of my own practice, uh, a way that I can put Andrew Fraser's texts on a pedestal next to a form, and I could insert Haroon's work into the sculpture and wonder what happens. Does it blow up? Is it, is it lost in there forever? Can it be downloaded? Um, John Locke is a sculpture. So I just showed you a bunch of things from 2017. I'm just gonna finish by showing a couple things that are earlier. James likes John Locke. So we can ask him about it later. John Locke is a sculpture that a person cannot hide behind if there was a person there. Well, maybe a small person. Um, it's one of the few pieces I've ever made that doesn't have another object in it. So there is no photo on the other side. So it really was a more minimal moment for myself to really think about the intentionality of form and how form, what form can, uh, if it's abstract, lose and not depict. Um, I only have one picture of this. I was gonna show for context a solo exhibition I made at the Consortium in 2008. And just to go back and forth quickly, um, this is one possible view. So I have at different times installed works where there might be things you don't see or little hints of them. Just to go back to Truett for a second, the amount of time it takes to see something in her work, to see the color and how the color unfolds. This is something I've gotten from her. Uh, these forms were all different sizes and irregular and they all had objects. Um, and then I was gonna just go back to, to Truett to finish up. So I was lucky to be passing through LA when these two works were installed. 
out there and uh, recently at Matthew Mark's gallery a couple years ago. And I was just shocked because the, the light in LA is so different. <laughs> so I had only seen Truett in New York and suddenly I was in Los Angeles seeing Truett in a gallery with skylights with natural light and it was just really, really beautiful. Uh, very contemplative experience to see so much. Um, I found this detail on the website. You know, again, I'm sure just the same way that I've also had the experience of walking into a gallery and being like, ugh, I don't want to see this, and then walking right out. I don't know what it is. You know, the things that you can miss if you don't give them time, if you don't investigate, I think it's hard to know from this picture that that's happening there. And it's even hard to know from this picture that that's happening there. Um, so that's my last picture, and I didn't, I didn't write anything, and I didn't look at my notes, so thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.